Welcome to The New Romantics. My name's Sophie Scott. And I'm Will Eaves. And I'm a neuroscientist. Will is a... Novelist and poet. And what we try and do in The New Romantics is to communicate with each other. And we do this through the medium of pieces of work which we set each other to read. And Will sends me poems and short stories and books to read. And I give him enormous scripted scientific papers to read. I think I get the better <laughs> end of this deal. I'm going to go straight into... The first piece, which is the two poems that Will sent me. Um, Will, would you tell me a bit more about these? I thought they were extraordinary. Right, so I gave um, Sophie this time two very ancient poems, well, old English poems, and we don't really know the date of composition. They're called The Seafarer and The Wife's Lament, and they are elegies that crop up in the Exeter book. Now, the Exeter book um, is the sort of really the repository of most of the surviving short poems in Old English. And um, it's so-called because it was discovered in an inventory of Exeter Cathedral made in 1370. And the inventory mentions it briefly as, you know, one of a number of books that are, you know, worn out with age and worthless. But in fact, it's got all these fantastic things in it. It's got, it's got the elegies, it's got the riddles, it's got Beowulf. These elegies are some of the most direct and beautiful of the poems in the Exeter book. And they address the predicament of the individual who stands on the outside of society. So the seafarer is a man, although it's not a, not a completely obviously gendered person, but we think it's a man uh, who is both taking a sea voyage far away from his homeland, but is also thinking about taking a sea voyage. And this is really important for what we're going to discuss later, because the fact that he's imagining it and the fact that he is also in some sense doing it, we start with him actually in a boat and lots of visions of cliffs and gulls and sort of hail flying sideways and screaming discomfort. We're not yet in the medieval period. We might, if we like, want to call it the early medieval period. The, this, this is dated roughly at about 970 AD. And in these poems, we confront a world of hardship and struggle and sorrow angled towards final redemption in the resting place with the Father, with the God, and a dark ages sensibility that comes from um, a Roman consul called Bethius, uh, who wrote in the 6th century, who wrote a marvellous um, book called The Consolation of Philosophy. It's full of dialogues about someone who's in prison and being, you know, suffering horribly, uh, who sees the suffering as a path towards um, God. And this sensibility is alive in Old English poetry too. And for the people, the figures in these poems, internal suffering and imagination, the travails of the spirit, are every bit as real as physical hardship and catastrophe in the outside world. So nature and supernature, if you like, are the same thing. There's no distinction between the two. They're all part of an expanded physical and mental reality. 
And that's something that's really very, very interesting for psychologists and neuroscientists now, at least I hope, <laughs> I hope so, if you would have found it interesting, but she was bored by it, I don't know. So that's The Seafarer, and I will maybe read a little bit of it in a moment. The other poem is The Wife's Lament. And these are titles, by the way, that were given to the poems in the 19th century, so they're not actually in the extra book. It's all just written across the page. And it is verse, but it's, but it's not divided into versified lines. And The Wife's Lament is a slightly more complex, very, very beautiful story, clearly spoken by a woman who lives in an excavated cavity beneath an oak tree, who is lamenting her division from the husband she loved. He has gone away to another land and left her behind. And it's a slightly ambiguous poem. There's a sense that he might even have directed her to be in this earthen cave beneath the tree. And there is also the clear sense in the poem that he has been worked on by other people to believe ill of her. And this is part of the reason that he's fled. Because the last part of the poem addresses a new character, a new young man, who is the person responsible for dividing these lovers. And it's extremely upsetting and moving. And I think I'm just going to read that bit because you'll get a sense of how the alliteration and how the emotion come together. Our lips had smiled to swear hourly that nothing would split us save dying. Nothing else. All that has changed. It is now as if it had never been our friendship. I feel in the wind that the man dearest to me detests me. I was banished to this knoll knotted by woods to live in a den dug beneath an oak. Old is this earthen room. It eats at my heart. May grief and bitterness blast the mind of that young man. May his mind ache behind his smiling face. May a flock of sorrows choke his chest. He would change his tune if he lived alone in a land of exile far from his folk. Where my friend is stranded, frost crusts the cracked cliff face, grey waves grind the shingle. The mind cannot bear in such a bleak place very much grief. He remembers too often less grim surroundings. Sorrow follows this too long wait for one who is estranged. That translation is by Michael Alexander, a great Anglo-Saxon and uh, early English poetry scholar. The last thing I'll say about it is that there's a small but critically visible body of opinion that thinks that the speaking voice in The Wife's Lament, it's a short poem, it's extremely beautiful, that thinks that this voice is that of a ghost. That in fact, when she says she lives beneath an oak tree... She has, in fact, been buried there and that we are listening to of we're listening to the soul on its way to God like the seafarer, but saddled with the sorrow of her earthly mishaps. What did you make of it, Sophie? <laughs> I, my weird feeling after reading them both was feeling like I'd, I'd felt like I'd been visited by a ghost, sort of strange and cold and distant, but also very recognisable and yeah. very meaningful. And uh, everybody with a humanities background is allowed to cry on the floor now with, with stress at what I'm about to say, but <laughs> it hadn't really occurred to me that something so old could be framing such recognisable concerns and in a way that was as 
beautiful and as sort of touching in the way that it's couched as anything that could be being written in a contemporary way. I don't know if you remember, a very long time ago, we went to that thing at the British Museum where they had all this art that you can sort of use to identify when modern humans appear on Earth. They start making things in yes, great was, abundance. And, Ice Age art, wasn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's beautiful stuff, and it's a comb, but it's got a horse on it. So I should, you know, a second thought would suggest to me that if material objects humans make can be very, you know, across the centuries, a millennia recognisable, then the, thing, the words, when they exist, could also have that power. But I suppose my experience of older poetry has normally been of something that felt more distanced by sort of other sorts of cultural and contextual references. So I was, I was surprised at how moving I found them. Well, really. they, they are, I think they're extremely moving and they do, it, it's part of their explicit intention in the, in the sort of subject matter and the content of the poem to speak across time because they are addresses to people who are no longer there. You know, so the husband, the lover, who's gone to a sort of a, a far place that's that's in itself friendless. Mm. I have a suspicion that you know it could it could even be Iceland. That actually, it could it could be that he's he, he's emigrated. He's 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 gone a long way. That's absolutely it's completely contemporary, and it is about friendlessness. Mm. It, it, I think that's the thing that really speaks to us. It's about addressing someone who's either lost in time uh, or in space in both and who represents that sudden kind of lurching awareness we have that life is pretty fragile mm. and that there's a lot of danger around and we somehow have to make our peace with that. Most early English poetry is social, so it is about the mead hall, the gathering, all the kind of references to fame in Beowulf and in these poems, you know, gold hall, my yeah. gold friend, my gold lord. Those are literally about the kind of chief who rules the roost, who yeah. governs the village or the mead hall. But they are also about being looked after. So you have to be social in order to be safe. In this, you have to be inside. If you're outside, it's not safe. Yeah. Because outside is wild. And outside is largely trees, which is why the tree and wife's lament is so important. Yeah. Because you know, if you're in the woods, that is where you encounter beasts, hardship, exposure, wild boars, and also other exiles who are violent. Mm. What you often find in these poems is a great fear of the friendless one. And the friendless one is called the Winileas Mon, uh, the friendless man. Yeah. And that person who is no longer held, that is a person who is no longer held to anyone else's expectations, and so therefore they're dangerous. They're like yeah. a sort of rogue, a sort yeah. of, you know, a, a, a loose cannon. Yeah. So in Beowulf, when Grendel is a monster that comes and sort of destroys the Mead Hall and kills all Beowulf's friends and Beowulf has to go and sort of fight the, the monster and then fight his mother. But he's both a monster and a kind of monstrous embodiment of what happens to people when they no longer have a hearth 
to be beside when they know when they're no longer social. So mm-hmm. all these poems are about um, being social because that's being alive and being safe. Yeah. And what's interesting about these two is that poetry is beginning to take a swerve here and it's becoming personal. Yeah. We've got for the first time poems from a very very personal standpoint talking about what it's like not to be. Yeah. Inside. And I think this is new and significant in poetry. And that's why they are so moving. Because we still worry so much about belonging, don't we? Yes. What is it? You turn on the radio and people talk about, you know, what are you doing with your tribe this evening? You know, it's it's a very, very public thing. We've The word tribe has become a really kind of part of a modern argo. Yeah. But what happens if you don't have a tribe? And that's what these poems are about. So these would have been... Um, these would certainly have been performed and spoken, but they're written down too. Yeah. And I think as written poems, they acquire a new interior life that's quite different to the others. They have had a life when they were never written down and then they happen to be written down. Yeah. Would they have been written down from quite early on? Is we don't a... quite know. We, to be honest, we don't know. They crop up here in this mm. book. There's, there, there's, you know, we, we can date the manuscript, but we can't date the composition. That's the problem, really. So we, we have to kind of um, work with inferences. But, yes, the, the idea is that it's, it's a, it's a, it comes from a root of storytelling that is bardic and oral, mm. and then it begins to be written down. Well, many things begin to be written in what we might loosely call a sort of semi-literal, pre-literate culture. Mm. Alfred is the first person, you know, really to to translate the Psalms into English. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is the first major um, repository of, of, of prose English, some verse two. And then the Exeter book has these beautiful poems in it. So there's not... There's not an enormous amount of material, but there's still more than you might think. I think mm. there's quite a few thousand, like something like thirty thousand lines or something yeah. of, of poetry. So it's a, it's a fair corpus, but as to the precise circumstances in which it was spoken and performed, you'd have to you know you'd have to ask a, a, an Anglo-Saxon scholar. Yeah. But I think it's all pretty much up for grabs. I suppose the point about performances, I hadn't really even thought about this until you gave me these to read. But we, you know, if you look at doing things where we all you know, variously sit down and shut up and let somebody else do something or we all do something together, but there's a kind of shared experience of performance and an audience and a, a space where this is happening. is completely universal across humans. Often the emphasis is on things that are positive things like music and sharing music or making music together, which is enjoyable, dancing together, which is enjoyable, or things like, you know, things that make people laugh or things that people find, it, you know, like some skill they enjoy watching. It seems very striking to me that something this desolate mm-hmm. and and heartbreaking would be emerging as such a a thing that people would sort of have a shared experience around. It, I suppose what I'm saying is uh, Anglo-Saxons were allowed to be as emotionally complex as yeah. people nowadays and that, that would be part of a rich emotional life. It's... Well, I think we just have to think about the implications of what it would be to, li- to lead a really hard life. Mm. You know, and the implications are that you, you know, you have to deal with, you know, infant mortality. We've talked about this before. You have to deal with failing crops, um, you know, subsistence farming, uh, political reversals. We're talking about the dark ages after all. Yeah. And, and, and enormous amounts of threat mm. from all quarters. And 
I think this largely accounts for the, the, the taking hold on these shores of Christianity. You know, the solving belief, the solving and saving belief that promises reward for hardships endured. It sort of comes into focus as a creed uh, when you take into account the sorts of lives and the kind of disconnectedness that was potentially there if you got cast out of your community. Mm. Um, who then would you rely on? It's very important then to be able to cultivate this kind of inner life that isn't illusory, mm. that is real, where the spirit has a trajectory towards a real afterlife or afterword, as it's called sometimes here, mm. in which your deeds, however misunderstood and unwitnessed they may have been in life, are witnessed by a deity. You know, I think what, one of the sort of things that is such an obvious thing we don't think about, but, but one of the... Corollaries of living in a, by our standards, massively depopulated Britain was that outside your immediate community, you just didn't meet many people. That's yeah. why it was so frightening to be outside it. Yeah. You know, you were really on your own. But people did live on their own, and some of those communities are very small. And the sense of being abandoned mm. was very real and present. Uh, how do you rescue yourself from that abandonment? That's what the spiritual journey is about in these places. Mm. Uh, and that's what the striking out for new solitary territory is about. You know, so when the seafarer thinks of um, a fair land folk beyond, he says, he's sort of thinking about a monastic environment mm. where you can put down new roots and build a new community that allows you to think about the perils of your life safely. I have an open mind about God, but an agnostic leaning towards atheism. But I think that that, that idea of going a long way from places, retreating from the world in order to understand the fear and the peril of not belonging somewhere mm. is terribly moving. Mm. You know, I think that's why people meditate, isn't it? That's the whole point of meditation. You retreat in order to understand your vulnerability. And that, yes, that kind of sense of isolation, that very deliberate removal, it just yeah. seems to be crops up repeatedly wherever you find a, yeah. some kind of religious experience. Yeah. A... I mean, there's another thing which is quite interesting, which is the, um, which might now bring us onto the, um, onto the journal article. There was a very, very good book written by the psychologist Anthony Store uh, called Solitude. Mm. Uh, it was written about ten or twenty years ago. The main burden of it is that people often retreat in life prior to a change. It's a sort of, it, like, like an insect has to kind of build a sort of cocoon in order to undergo its metamorphosis. We do something similar mentally. Mm. We have to, we, well, we have to have some physical retreat in order to prepare ourselves mentally for something new. It's a kind of learning procedure. Mm. It's, in a very dramatic way, it's about absorbing a stimulus, often some kind of suffering, in order to move, come out of it again and move beyond it.
let's start thinking about this journal article, which is about invisible companions in childhood and what role these imaginary entities, if that's what they are, play in our development. Yes, so this is a paper by, I have to say, uh, full disclosure, I I do know these researchers and I've I've worked with them on a different project in the past, but um, it's a paper by Charles Ferniehoe and his colleagues, including Ben Alderson Day. And the paper's called Imaginary Companions, Inner Speech and Auditory Verbal Hallucinations, What are the Relations? What they're trying to do, and part of their bigger, I think Charles's bigger picture here, is he's very interested in the question of the relationship between well, the nature of inner speech and thought and how that relates to other phenomena, such as people who hear voices that are experienced as hallucinations, yeah. and also the link to having all these kind of imaginary conversations that kids do when they're playing often with an imaginary companion. So how do these things relate to each other? Are they three totally different things or is there some kind of central way in which they pull together? And I think there's two things that are really interesting here. It's a really interesting question to ask, interrogating the nature of how people experience inner speech and actually how that relates to auditory verbal hallucinations and how very, very common auditory verbal hallucinations are is very interesting. I thought also the thing that might appeal to you was that this is largely a set of questions about trying to understand someone's unobservable behaviour. Yeah. And can you ever really start to characterise any of this scientifically? Uh, So, you know, um, and they do at one point kind of take a bend into creative writing and and writers, um, which I didn't know until I read it. I didn't choose it for that reason. Um, But I thought I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. One of the interesting starting points is what is the nature of inner speech and how do you experience inner speech? Is it, for example, a monologue? Is it a conversation? There's a very strong argument that says it's a conversation. You acquire language in conversation. Your parents talk to you as if you were talking to them. And everything you learn about language is learned in this interaction. So the idea is, well, that would be then inner speech becomes a useful framework for thought. There's lots of evidence that you don't need inner speech to do lots and lots of the things we all do with our brains all the time, but that the your, still, your experience of it could be based on that. And then um, what does it actually feel like? So Charles has this argument that says, actually, it shifts a lot. So sometimes your inner speech can be, um, he describes it as a frame, just like a kind of a, the language is a, a little kind of shelf onto which ideas can be hung, mm. but it's not fleshed out. It doesn't have a sound to it. It doesn't have. There's no voice there. There's no emotion to the voice. And then that can go all the way through to something that sounds extremely voice-like, extremely recognisable, with emotion to it, loudness to it. And often he says that's when the inner voice is getting more emotional. Certainly, in my experience, if I get really caught up thinking about something, maybe something particularly where I've done something and I'm ruminating on something I've done wrong and I should have done it better. Just before I end up actually saying aloud, oh, for God's sake, Sophie, my inner voice will have got really loud, you know, and I, in the end, I'm just saying it. So um, you're almost seeing this kind of trajectory going from a very abstract frame all the way through to what happens just before you start talking and includes you starting talking, not normally in an unemotional way. It's interesting that he uses the word frame, isn't it? Because mm. Wittgenstein talks a lot about the picture of reality in philosophical investigation. His sort of sense is that, you know, there is this... Because we're talking overall about the relationship of our inner life to the outside world. 
you know, and observability and what it means. And he says that, you know, there really is an objective world, mm. um, but it is it's caught up in the threshing of language and perception. He doesn't think, as the idealists do, that actually, you know, it's all about mental construction. It's, it's all perception. He doesn't say that. He says there really is an objective world, mm. but it's very difficult to get access to it um, because we're caught in the, you know, what he calls the, sort of, um, the picture trap of language. And I, and I think that's partly what Charles is saying there, isn't he? I mean, yes, it's a scale, but it's like mm. we're mo- it's the difference between a, um, a frame with a blank canvas in it and a, and a frame with something very highly coloured and representative. Yeah. Um, yes. But, they're, but they're, all, they're all sorts of pictures. I mean, I, I, I did, I'm interested in what you think personally about, you know, inner speech, as it's called here, because my sense is that I'd have to find another kind of metaphor to describe it, really. It's already a sort of metaphor. Mm. And, and I'd have to say it's something that stands, you know, on the... It's like a figure on the threshold of a mirror. It's like or something on the, on the lip of experience. It's not quite there. I mean, there's so many different questions you can ask about it. Like, what, what's it even doing at all? A friend of mine had a, a stroke that took out what's called Broca's area sitting sort of on the left side of your brain, just behind your left eye. She made a pretty good recovery. She has difficult, She had great difficulty speaking at first, and now she can speak reasonably well, still with effort, but she can do so. And she's returned to work and things like that. She has no inner speech at all. She's no experience of it. Now she's doing everything else fine, you know. My colleague Rosemary Varley has argued that, in fact, even if language is gone, so you really have great difficulty understanding or producing any speech. People can still do maths, they can do logic problems, they can solve... Mm. There's lots and lots of stuff we don't seem to need inner speech or even language for. You'd think maths would just be gathering up language as a, you know, as a substrate it's immediately. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I just listening to you say that, though, I, I kind of think it, it's easy to kind of construct false binaries, isn't it, and say there's this thing called inner speech and then various kinds of inner speech and then there's this being caught to logical manipulations and so on which don't require it. But I'm, wonder if, I'm wondering if they aren't all a bit more closely related than, than, than that suggests. In other words, they're sort of a bit tessellated. You know, they, one kind of locks almost imperceptibly into another until something else emerges. I don't know whether we want to use that word emergent here, but, you know, it's... Well, there's this argument. Nick Chater's just written a book called The Mind is Flat. That, what I just said is only surprising if you think that actually inner speech and your, your experience of thinking is actually directly making manifest to you what your brain is doing when it's doing all sorts of things like sitting up in a chair or doing maths. What Nick Chater argues, and I may I haven't read all of his book yet so I could have got this wrong, but he argues that actually that's an illusion because there's so much, there's a huge amount of unconscious processing. Most mm. of what your brain is doing you don't have awareness of. But he he says the the mistake that we make with that is to then assume that somehow there's a tremendous amount of um, sort of ineffable computational power sitting underneath anything that we're doing, yeah, and that we're just we're, and we sort of fill in that complexity because that's what human brains do. We fill it in when we think about our brains, but it could be a lot flatter than that. It could be a lot less complicated, and your sense of the endless complexity of it is coming from what our brains do now. I'm like a kind of interference. With something know, like yeah. that. Something that, that's, it's effectively the same illusions that we're prone to when we experience the world. 
we're experiencing when we experience our brains. Now, I will stop this because I need to finish his book and do much more better justice to this, perhaps in another discussion. You can kind of go down the what is the purpose route. That's, you know, it is interesting. I think it's very interesting in terms of all the things you do use in a speech for, like, for example, regulating emotional state, ruminating creativity, lots of things are incredibly, you know, helpful for that. But the other thing is simply to describe what is the thing, what is it like, and then what does that mean for other situations? So I think the the thing that we keep coming back to in our field is what's the relationship between this experience of inner speech and our experience of speech that appears to come from someone else but is just still inside our heads? Yeah. So when you have an auditory verbal hallucination, what is the relationship between that and thought? Is it there's a persistent thought or idea that what you experience as an auditory verbal hallucination is somehow your own inner speech mislabeled and misattributed so you are struggling to recognize something as coming from you it's somehow you don't have ownership over it but it's still your thoughts it's still you your behavior you know that's what you're experiencing rather than um something that's being generated from some entirely well, different yeah, route that, the question of where the the relationship between the invisible companion and these which is the paper says one customarily thinks of being somehow under the um, child's or the adult's control and the auditory verbal hallucination, which, as you say, comes from elsewhere and is uncanny precisely because it appears to acquire or have some of its own agency in the same way that we assume another person in the real world speaking to us has their own agency. I mean, that's that's very important, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted to kind of plot those things in a, in a sort of rather callow, naive way, you would say, well, the invisible companion is the conscious mind creating an entity that they're in control of where there's a known manipulation of the fantastic, of a phantasm. The auditory verbal hallucination is a further stage, as it were, in the evolution of the imagination, which is we're trying to conceive what kind of person it is we've created for ourselves and conferring upon them some kind of agency. And then it speaks back and sometimes in unexpected ways. And then outside the space helmet of our consciousness, there's the real world and people speaking to us who we then have to internalise and remark much as we would remark a verbal hallucination and decide whether it's real or unreal, make a series of judgments about it. That's really the plot. Those, those, that's the trajectory, yes. I think. I mean, developmentally, I, th I think the crucial thing is what is it that children are doing when they have an invisible companion and when they hear inner speech and sometimes when they have AVH. An invisible companion is really a guide to overwhelming stimuli, a guide to the world as you encounter it as a young person with, you know, insufficient data yet to really process it all. And it's a way of making the experience bearable. I'd always thought of it as something a lot more boring than your rather beautiful description. <laughs> um, so if you think about this, uh, conversations, sort of everything for humans as a the context in which we behave. So this kind of the role for conversation as a disjoint act that you do, you interact with somebody from a tiny, tiny age, um, babies, 
or react to someone who's talking to them and you know um have have conversations and um there's there's always little videos going around on the internet of, you know watch this father have a conversation with his son and this child's just talking you know the baby's just talking absolute gibberish but having a perfect conversation it's doing the thing that you do to have this interaction it's as if that's the model for language that's the model for social interactions for everything's kind of built on that and that part of development and developing your understanding of language but presumably also in a speech is kind of porting that into what you do and that in fact a lot of childhood play and speech is really you know when they're on their own it's just highly conversational even if there's no one else imagined there as the adult in a speech is frequently still mm. a conversation that's why it's because that's it's it's built on mm. what the children are doing so i'd always thought that the the rarefication of the other half of that conversation into another person was just something some kids did but it's 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 kind of begging that possibility it's, yeah. it's a, you know they are the more imaginative children who fill out that role into something and maybe lots of you know lots of other things could feed into that and, and interestingly here the point of the paper is that there does seem to be a relationship between people who had imaginary companions as children who do hear voices as adults so there is something about the otherness of the imaginary companion but isn't it but isn't it i think that's true but isn't it also that you are learning to depend upon yourself depend on yourself when you can't really depend on anyone else or they're not quite comprehensible to you or they're just not there I mean, I think there's the thing that the word that is missing from all this, I think is really interesting and important is loneliness. I don't think that kind of specificity of emotional experience is normally folded in to this (laughs) kind of um, psychological question. It would be very interesting to know what are the other things that contribute to this. So, because you could ask why, yeah, why, 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 are, why are people filling out their solitude like this? So, what this just speaking to my ignorance, maybe there's an entire rich literature on this, but is it more common in children that are more isolated? Is it, you know, did you have an imaginary friend? I didn't have an imaginary no, I didn't. friend. Um, I just bossed my brother around. Still do, you know. But um, I had three. But I had three siblings. Yeah, and, and and it was a big family. Quite an interesting question to ask, though. And certainly, I. It's not unusual if you listen to children involved in solitary play, which requires them to be in a solitary play situation, which is not often, if you're there, often stops being solitary. They chat away. Yeah. They chat away to themselves. That conversation that gets internalised into inner speech is very obvious in children. That's what, you, it's, it's, it's quite easy to observe. So I suppose in a way it's more surprising they don't more of them have it turned into a part of their play being these kind of constant other figures. But then the, I suppose the other thing that I can't get my head round with auditory verbal hallucinations, which are really common, so it used to be always thought that that was a... There is no one symptom that everybody with a diagnosis of schizophrenia experiences, but a very common one culturally that we believe in is is people hearing voices being a sign of schizophrenia. And in fact, actually, you get it with a lot of other you know people with um, bipolar disorder also hear voices. It's not limited to people with schizophrenia. But it's turned out that if you just ask the question differently, there it's estimated that for every single person who has a psychiatric diagnosis and hears voices, there is someone who is completely neurotypical, has no psychiatric di- disturbance whatsoever, and who also hears voices. Mm. They tend not to tell you because mm. they, uh, in our car, in, the, in this time and place, 
it has this psychiatric meaning. But it used to have a very different meaning. Joan of Arc heard voices. Yeah. You know, throughout history, it's a it's well. This is what a I, this thing. is what you're, this is precisely kind of what I meant about the, the poems is that the inner and the outer didn't have that clear demarcation yeah. that we assume, or rather, it, you know, the, the inner world was really thought to be physical. It was mm. part of an expanded sense of what the physical world was. Yeah. There wasn't it, the temptation we talk about, you know, early modern or pre-modern and early modern poetry in medieval verse is that, uh, you know, you can use all sorts of anachronistic terms like, oh, it's metaphysical. Well, that's not really quite true. Yeah. The, the point is, it's for them, it was physical. Yeah. You know, they didn't... They And as late as Macbeth, you know, Shakespeare, you're dealing with work that is on the threshold of the ages between this world in which the inner and the outer are really part of the same thing, all part of createdness, and then the new science and Bacon and then Leibniz and later on Newton. And everyone says, oh, you know, when you see a production of Macbeth, usually the the witches are, you know, they're, they're frightening, and but they're quite often presented as projections of one sort or another. Yeah. And it's important to understand they're not. They're not projections. They're real. What would be quite a sort of interesting thought experiment would be to retrofit this journal article mm. about inner speech to a society in which the distinctions between the inner dialogue and the world outside between conscience and the world of the spirit and mm. the world of activity weren't so obviously or rather they were they were held to be equal yes they had they had an, they had an equal um valency i think it's very interesting that this project came out of um a couple of big grants that charles Furnier had from the welcome trust which were humanities grants with a scientific aspect to them called hearing the voice where they were very specifically involving historians and other people interested in the history of voice hearing and this kind for this precise reason because we've ended up with a situation where this is heard as a bad thing and therefore you've got a problem and yeah people tend not to tell you that they hear voices you have to ask very carefully to find out if people hear voices who don't have a psychiatric diagnosis they will it's not and or you find strange kind of communities like a lot of spiritualist communities have yeah. these people in them because that's it has a different meaning there but it wasn't always the way that's not this is our culture now in this place and time we put all this extra stuff on it it's fascinating to me for example i, I don't know about you i get earworms music on my brain all the time I literally only if i am speaking do i not hear music and it just pops like someone turning the radio down and now I'm back up again as soon as you stop talking oh, something will kick off and i never experienced that as a hallucination not once do I experience it as it's, it's unwanted. Sometimes it's irritating, very rarely irritating. But it never feels to me like it's coming in from an external source. I never, n never once. It's, it doesn't worry me. I enjoy it. What gets labelled a hallucination, or what's some other thing that's just you know that if you look at the ear, earworms literature, it's never considered to be a hallucination. There's a wide range in people's experience of it, but we don't frame it in the same way as this voice hearing. Yeah. It is fascinating. I think it, it, I was about to say, well, you know, because the auditory verbal hallucination is is, is verbal and is and is speech. But of course, the the music is very often song and it's full of 
but some speech. I think you're right. I think one of the things that's really different is it's always a song you know, mm-hmm. whereas the verbal hallucinations can be saying anything. Well, you see, it's the new, isn't yeah. it? It's the new, it's, it's the, the new. unfamiliar. I've got a feeling that the, as it were, the second unwritten part to this journal article is about this business of dealing with unrecognised stimuli. Yeah. You know, that's why I said that thing about the developmental business, about yeah. the child being overwhelmed. Yeah. Because most of the world is unrecognisable. Most of the wider world is unrecognisable at the age of sort of four or five. You, know, you you rely on your parents to take you out and you you wouldn't go to encounter it yourself. It would be too terrifying. Yeah, It's a bit like those guides that crop up in... I'm sorry, all my examples are bound to be kind of, you know, um, aesthetic and poetic, but that's just the way it is. But, you know, it, it, in in classical culture, you know, in, in the Aeneid or in, in Homer, you know, there are guides to the underworld. There are intermediaries who explain what it's all about. And those people are recognisable, but they are mediating the unrecognisable. They are explainers. And I wonder if that's what, you know, rather like the sort of the Delphic Python goddess in in, in Greece is. Um, They are are people who explain... Or or they're shamans, to come back to the Ice Age and that that exhibition Mm. that we mentioned at the start. And, uh, you know, in animist cultures, the shaman is someone who goes down into Middle-earth on behalf of the sick person and finds their injured soul, their illness, and brings it back to them. I think you might have something really... Um, meaningful there because I think the thing that I mean going back to this you know the different questions we can ask about inner speech and that one I kind of batted off earlier about um, why why would we do this what does it mean if you don't need it don't need it immediately to do lots of things like sums and logic because that's all that matters in life (laughs) (laughs) because the other thing we know very well that if you have I mean lots of things don't work for insight psychiatric treatment but something that works well for depression is cognitive behavioural therapy where what you do is you tackle the fact that when people are very depressed, for example, they think very differently and they will react to things differently because of how they think and it's related to their mood. And the argument between cognitive therapy is if you tackle how people think, you get a toehold on mood. So you do things like thought-stopping, People have to recognise when they've started to think about something in an automatically negative way and you actively stop that happening. And it's not for everyone, not all situations, but actually it's better than anything else. It works well. So forcing a change on thought can change mood. And I wonder if that's telling us something about the thought in the first place, like the naturally occurring stuff. Actually, it is an explainer. It's your shaman that's there with you. Yeah. It's making sense of the world and why you feel this way in yeah. that situation. Because I'm... So incredibly well balanced, it's terrifying. But I, 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 mean, I got really irritated by something the other day, and I sat down and I thought, right, why are you irritated? Okay, I'm irritated because of X, Y, Z. And I thought, well, no, okay, so it's true that X, Y, Z were irritating, but you can't do anything about Y and Z. So let's look at X. What can you do differently about X? What can we do differently? And if we do different X differently, it might have an effect on Y and Z. But it was, it was very, very. And it, I felt better by the end of it. 
and that kind of you know the use of inner speech for that kind of yeah. I was thinking of it as regulating emotion but it was also explaining my actions to myself by make, forcing myself to think about what I'd done and why it's like trying it's, to sort of stop buffering isn't it yes exactly really, it's, I mean it's it's, it, 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 it's that sort of you, you don't want to become a kind of loop uh, or a circular machine you want to kind of get to the end of the process so maybe mm. inner speech has some um, I mean, I'm dubious about you know all, all, all AI metaphors and relations of the mind as you as you know all too well. But I mean, maybe it is about that, trying to get to the end of a process and not getting stuck along the way. Because of course, that's what C that's what CBT is about. Yeah, it's saying quite often, you know, if you're if you're depressed, um, you're stuck. And and what you find it very difficult to countenance is any kind of spontaneity, because spontaneity is the unknown and it's a threat. And exactly, there's a, there's a there's a safety and a comfort in doing things without going through this process. Ah, know, comfort, interesting word, mm. because I think we have a reduced sense of what comfort really is. It's very very important to the, that old English stuff. Comfort, the root means with strength. <sighs> it doesn't mean the familiar. Yeah. It doesn't mean everything's going to be all right there there. Yeah. It actually means what. I'll give you, when confronted with the new and the unfamiliar and the dangerous, is the strength to undergo it, mm. to have the experience. Yeah. And in a way, the, the difference between the IC, the, the imaginary companion, and the, and the auditory verbal hallucination, this is a bit... I mean, it's a bit reductive, but it seems to be part of what the article is saying. The IC is is usually positive, and the AVH is this is quite often more negative and, and critical and, and frightening. And what you want is to build a bridge, often yeah. between the two. I've got more and more interested in the idea of emotion regulation and finding comfort and why difficult things or you know behaviours that can seem really un- you know, harmful to people can be intensely comforting when you're actually engaged in them and that's why people do them. It's you know it's comforting because it's familiar. It's comforting. Yeah. You, you know, there's lots of reasons why stuff can give you that. But I hadn't thought about the with strength, the kind of sense of power and connection that that would give you. It's not just familiar. I just want to go back to something that we were just discussing earlier, which is the sort of status of the invisible companion as an entity, if we want to call it that. I mean, we think of an entity as being something, you know, in the real world, objectively true. If it's a sentient entity, then then it, it must have some sort of awareness or consciousness on a sliding scale from, you know, small creatures to big ones. One of the things that the questionnaire that these experimenters give the participants asks is does your invisible companion show signs of disagreeing with you and what is the sort of point at which that happens and I found myself wondering and sort of worrying over this notion of what it would be for you know an imaginary construct to develop or have its own agency. On the one hand, you might say that's just 
might be the product of a slightly pathological mind, you know, a, a real a real delusion. But on the other hand, it might be what we do very normally when we try to develop an idea. You have an idea of something you want to make in the real world, whether it's an object or indeed whether it's a child. You know, you might want to... You might want to have children. And then you have to sort of some do something to make this wish come true. And I think that the... Therefore, you can sort of see giving an imaginary companion its own agency is a bit like wish fulfilment in a funny kind of way. It's asking yourself, what do I have to do to make something real? What do I have to do to confer, you know, a real status on this thing that is just inside my head? And it's also asking how real are our conceptions? You know, do they have agency anyway? And I think it's a really interesting question because actually all the evidence is humans, when they think about other humans, this is adults, not children, struggle to attribute agency to other people. So people will always give different reasons why they have done something compared to the exact same action by someone else. They'll always say, well, other people didn't quite think it through or they were just reacting to the situation. I I weighed up all the possibilities and, you know, I, I, I'm behaving rationally. Everybody else is just blundering around. So actually we... Agency is something we are... We, we parcel out quite sparingly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the yeah. other people in our environment, which is it's always worth remembering. Yeah, I think that I think it, it is true, and, and maybe that's partly why the, you know the poems are moving too. Is that they, they they these these people who are stuck on their own, you know, on wind blasted rocks or in a boat in the middle of the ocean, are they've only got themselves to talk to, and um, the people who they did love and were close to have cast them out yeah you know and i think that when we get when we were this is an interesting one when we were rejected by society it becomes even more difficult to attribute agency to that person because the evidence the only evidence we have for it is harmful mm. yeah absolutely or our conception then of agency becomes something that's negative not positive yes I and mean, it's one of the worst feelings yeah. and you can sort of the sense that you're being excluded from something or that these things are withdrawing from you the panic it kind of there's that very good uh, John Ronson book so you've been publicly shamed yeah like an absolute and it's absolutely primitive it's completely by which I mean you know like the a completely recognisable I would imagine to all humans across all points in our experience that being shunned yeah being cut off in which case as the authors of this of this article say sometimes um, the invisible companion is a way back to society. Yeah. It helps you to become social again. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they say here, specifically we predicted that those with experience of ICs would evidence more expanded social-like experiences of inner yeah. speech, such as reporting other people in inner speech or inner speech with dialogic characteristics. One of the things that I, I I love and I get and I also get quite cross with about my field is that we take something and treat you know you can study language your whole life and never know 
people used it in conversations, the children used it to scaffold their emotional life, the adults use it to sort out how they're feeling about something. You can treat it as this beautiful abstract system and this fantastic you know, computational power and the, the different kinds of languages and the different ways they work. and They're wonderful. Language, beautiful. But it is always thoroughly and completely embedded in the social. It has its roots in that, it's built in that, we learn it in mm. that, we use it for that, that's where it matters. We're social primates. This is our primary mode for communication, is talking with each other. And all of that computational power and all of that beauty means nothing if you can't use it in that way. Yeah, yeah. The Lit Crits version of that would be, well, the, the, the rider they'd add to that would be that one of the difficulties you then get with language, of course, is that it's used socially, but it means different things to different people. So what you're always wrestling with is you're weighing up personal nuance, the kind of the inflection of meaning that you mm. give to a word and what its public meaning is. And um, those two things are, I mean, th- therein, therein lies the whole, the joy and the, 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 the taxing epiphenomenon of language. Mm. Because you, you're dealing with, especially when you're writing, you are, things have a dictionary definition. Um, and they mean different things to different people. And what you're trying to capture is enough of the former to reach an individual but also to give them enough to work with to sort of sculpt Mm. um, something that's personal to them. And one way you might put that in registers of language is you might say there's something called public languages, the demotic, which everyone has, and then there's something that's um, utterly private, like the invisible companion thing doesn't even Mm. get to be uttered. Mm. And then there's something between the two, which is personal language. It's sufficiently public to be uttered, but it's not demotic, and nor is it private language. Mm. And, I, and I think that when you're dealing with aesthetics and art, you're always striving for the plausibly, appreciably personal. Yeah. Well, maybe that's something we can come back to. Well, so we've had a lot of conversations about voices and meaning and things on the page and things in the space. Yeah. So that might be something for next time for the new so. romantics to start to Let's do that. struggle with. Well, here we are um, at the end of the ninth episode. Thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. I've been Will Eves and... I've been Sophie Scott. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>